Have you had your soup today? And the cold, crisp taste of Coke is so satisfying, it keeps me from eating something else that might really add those pounds. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are. Welcome to our episode of Sheologians slash Cultish. We're here today. Well, I guess we're once again putting the she and the CIA. Yes. <laughs> yeah. We're continuing our conversation that we started last week. But Jerry, you said something earlier that I've been wanting to go back to. Mm. Um, I know that you guys like want to talk about conspiracies and everything, but I want to know what you said that there are things that cultish will never cover, no matter how many times you get emailed about it. Yes. And that was so relatable because there are things that Joy and I mm-hmm. are never going to cover, no matter how many times we're emailed about it. And so I thought that was very relatable. And I'm like, what is one of yours? Harry Potter. Harry Potter. Yeah. I just, Why won't you cover? I just mean, so I'm, you know, you will now be getting. I know. Just, <laughs> I mentioned it. Why uh, won't you cover that though? That was my idea. Oh man, Harry Potter. <laughs> oh, it's just sorry, guys. It, it's one of those things. Like it's like I'm a huge movie aficionado. Like I, I'm a huge huge film aficionado, and I, I don't know. I don't think watching show, like a film like that is inherently sinful. Um, and like even well, it's not cultish. It's not. It's, <laughs> I mean, it's also. Just, I'm going to lose half Harry my Potter, by this. Harry Potter <laughs> is a book series. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sorry. When I when I I'm, think when I when I when I think when I think of like exposing Harry Potter, I think of like the Karen Christian moms of like the 2000s who were like protesting and picketing outside of uh theaters and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. It's just I don't or you know Barnes and Noble where books are sold. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> Yeah, are there th- are there things that that are depicted in the worldview that are accurate to aspects of witchcraft and the occult and those sort of things? Yeah, but eh. you know, kind of. I mean, you could you could eh. make that argument, but the, the, the I don't know the show. The I mean, the movie series, and I haven't read the books, but the movie series is Wait, not. You really, haven't read Harry Potter. I haven't read. That's why he can't cover it. Jeremiah, uh, <laughs> you call me by my full name. Yeah, <laughs> I'm. Because this is the first time I've ever been disappointed in you. Oh. Ever. I've it's known a, you it's since a, like the late series. 90s. I was going to say, yeah. that's a few decades. You, know, okay. so. you should take that as a compliment, okay. given how long I've known you. Hey. I don't know. It's just, the series is about friendship and loyalty, and it just so happens to have the ba- the backdrop of Hogwarts on it. And I don't know. Like, I don't There's see... plenty of stories about magic that people seem to have no problem with. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. It's well, like I, I definitely have I I love the series and I have critiques. Like yeah, there mm-hmm. are things mm-hmm. about Harry Potter that I would be like, that was not a good move. That yeah. that's yeah. that that could have been done better. That doesn't make sense. Well, you, if you're gonna go after if you're gonna go after a movie to like not watch, like go after Doctor Strange. Like at least there that's like that's like right, accu- right. and even that, I mean, you can watch that and be aware of what's being depicted. Yeah. And I think that's actually a catalyst for like a gospel conversation. So when 
the one guru in the first movie tells him to open your eye and his astral body goes out of his physical body. And they even did that into, into the spider verse. Mm. Like you can be aware. I'm not, you know, I'm not going to shelter anyone. Like don't watch that. It's evil. Like, okay. Use your Liberty. Use your conscience. If you want to watch that or not, but you know, be aware of what's being depicted in the same way. Yeah. Be aware of like what's being depicted in star Wars about, the force, right? Right. And so if you end up right. if you end up saying, Oh, you can't watch that, you're probably gonna end up having a kids who just end up resenting you. Well, uh, rather than actually have... equipping them to watch something to actually yeah. think critically about it. Well exactly. You're gonna have kids that go out into the world and start consuming material and they're not gonna have the skill to even analyze or translate what they're seeing. So you're creating essentially a community of Christians, and this is already happening how many Christians go off to college and lose their faith? Like that, you know, um, it's like, because they were never equipped. They know they, it's almost like they were lied to. Like Christianity isn't even strong enough to withstand Darwinism. Stupid. Like I think there's a component too. That's like, um, which I appreciate because my, um, my husband is, um, just a movie snob. Like he doesn't like to waste his time with movies Mm -hmm. at all. Um, and I think that there is something about interacting with with uh, media or, you know, art or books, music um, that also teaches you when something's not worth your time. Right. And when to turn it off. And so you either get you get this group of kids that goes out and has no idea how to interact and they have no idea how to turn off garbage. Right. Ooh, yeah, that's a good one. Turn off garbage. Yeah. That's mm. a skill as well. Right. Like you've, it really you've, is. You've assessed it and you're like, this isn't worth my time. Yep. Anyway, mm. I just thought I, it's well, funny that yours is Harry Potter. Yeah. Um, yeah be, I'm, it's going to be interesting to see the con, the sub comment section of this podcast. But it is what it is. One other funny message I got one time. So this beverage I'm enjoying. Yeah. It's called Liquid Death. And oh, it's, that's fun. It, it's, a, it's a sparkling water, and I <laughs> think it's got, it's got this interesting brand behind it, and it's just good sparkling water. This one's a lime flavor. Why but, is it called that? I don't know, but apparently the people who are into it, they are really into, like, Nordic mythology, and so they have all – their marketing campaign's a little extra – and so I'm sorry, this just keeps coming up for me. I already yes, mentioned yeah. to you recently how, like – I wish I knew more about like that Nordic Nordic mythology and yeah. Vikings in all general. Like I am Odin and all that. I know nothing. Yeah. Anyway, I'm sorry. Anyways, continue. So, I was actually checking the messages, which I I can't even keep up with the messages. So, for any of you who message me, I'm I'm really sorry. I don't I just don't have the time. And if you do get a message back from me, you have very, to be choosy. You're of the. Yeah. You're of the top one percent. So congratulations. But somebody messaged me and she. Uh, sent me like the advertisement for the for the liquid death and it's some it was a little, little weird or whatever and she's like can you give me your thoughts on this i think you'll ever do an episode on it and i'm literally on my <laughs> phone <one>. sipping a <laughs> liquid death <laughs> i'm like i don't even know what to say am i am i ingesting like but it's good huh yeah do and you, it's just sparkling it's a yeah. sparkling water am i like ingesting like the sweat of odin or like what's going on <laughs> <laughs> the sweat of Odin. They found a a mine. Yeah. A a pocket of Odin sweat. Yeah. Um, Andrew, do you have a no thank you? We won't be covering that anytime soon topic. Yeah, you know, when you start going to like the Harry Potter thing, it's kind of like all fiction then is on the table. You know, like there's nothing new under the sun. So when people make things, they're using things off of 
experience, you know, that they have in the world. I mean, Pokemon would be one of them. We're not going to cover that. Magic the <laughs> Gathering, we're not going to cover that. Dungeons and Dragons, we're not going to cover that. Lord of the Rings, we're not going to cover that. You know, like, essentially, if you go to the lengths of Harry Potter, then everything is on the table, and now your discernment is kind of off, mm. you know? There's no way to discern. It's just like everything is just giving you a, it's just going to flip you out, I guess. I don't know. If you're listening to this and you really want a podcast analyzing Harry Potter from a Christian worldview, uh, Stories Are Soul Food, which is Nate Wilson's podcast, did one not too long ago. Hmm. And I find it to be the most helpful analysis of Harry Potter, what it what it does wrong, what it does right. Um, so how about this just auto respond with a link to that, to like that episode and be like and have a good day and gotcha. may, may this bless you i'll check that out you know what's All interesting right. though too is that when people ask to research those things they're not really asking for like an objective uh response they really want you to just kind of throw it through the mud and kind of uh help reiterate what they already think about it you know so if you're going to go listen to that by the wilson clan I'm, I'm sure that that's phenomenal it probably gives an objective good uh level-headed standard you know so that, that yeah. that's a good plug up it's it's really good and I, even if you don't care about harry potter i think you should listen to it it's totally worth your time because it's just about how to like analyze story from a christian worldview which which is, is so interesting some people are like well stories are a waste of time but just so you know <laughs> these entire two episodes that we've been doing are also about a story everything is stories story. pl- take place in real life Every, as well. everything is story i don't care <laughs> i don't care if, you're, if you no. think that that's not true then you're wrong i really do love the idea <laughs> to my podcast <laughs> i do love the idea that helter skelter is like the main narrative but it's actually like but then there's like a twist yeah yeah that it what it's Surprise. yeah it's very speaking, uh, you know speaking of the main narrative yeah <laughs> no this is what you do this is what this is this, this is, is what a full we do t- so yep. if, if any of you are uh new to the podcast and this is maybe there are people here that um are listening to you both for the first time just tell them real quickly about what is the sheologians podcast about sure uh we cover everything but it's it's everything from a christian worldview so I, and maybe I can better answer that by answering the question I asked you, which is there is some stuff that Joy and I will never cover. And our our basic view on that is that if it's something that you should be talking to your pastor about, then it's not an episode that we're going to do. Right. Um, that's like just a general baseline for us. Um, but, you know, we kind of we started out wanting to be a micro podcast and then people complained that it, it was too short. And also, so, at this point, I don't know that we're capable of a micro. Podcast. I don't think we are either. <laughs> but yeah, you know, we've talked a lot about feminism from a Christian worldview. Um, we do like to talk about just culture through a Christian worldview and just like general Christian living for women. I think oh. that I think that women, I think that Christian women genuinely want to live fruitful Christian lives and that for far too long uh we just haven't had we had VBS we had had vacation bible school (laughs) sort of that was like the standard for what was available um if you're looking for a place to start we recently did something that I feel proud of which was we did um a feminism studies study where we did character studies of feminists from each wave um i again that was kind of a big project i would say that's one of our bigger 
projects that we've worked on. So mm. that's I'm a great place to start. I'm still getting emails about yeah. that mm-hmm. series. So anyway, you can find all and, those at com, and we're on Spotify and Apple yeah. and blah, 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 mm-hmm. blah. All the places. So we were talking about, I think this is actually a good transition. Because uh, Andrew, I know you have your thing you're going to bring in at the end of uh, the last episode. But um, the book that we're kind of discussing is a book by Tom O'Neill. Uh, it's called Chaos, Charles Manson, the CIA, and the Secret History of the 60s. So what we're talking about is the official story of what happened on in August of 1969 um, on Cielo Drive, where these horrific murders took place. And it's really the culmination of the 60s. But real quickly, from a cultural standpoint, he kind of goes into this in the books. In the book, you know, is really this, uh, if you're not love the one you're with. Like it was this very much free love. You can do whatever you want to do. And then this 19, that was the culmination of everything. Did feminism, did, I mean, yeah, that's what you cover a lot in your show. Like this cultural climax that we're looking at here. <laughs> did, did feminists have anything to do with that at all? <laughs> Maybe just a tad or am I totally off? Yeah, no, feminists had a lot to do with it. Um, I do think that women, when activated, are very successful activists. Mm. Um, And I think that, you know, we talked about in the last episode, something that I did a lot of reading about earlier this year, which is just what does sexual revolution have to do with bloodshed? Um, And that's because I was studying where did the story of Frankenstein came from? And then it came from the early feminists and it came out of the French revolution. And there's a reason for that. Um, Essentially when we, destabilize the family we destabilize civilization and blood is always a result of that and so i do think that the hippies um were looked down on um but they were craving i think that this was such an unstable time and they knew the fruit of the free love movement was going to be blood and if you look out if you look through history the fruit of uh, the breakdown of sexual ethics is always bloodshed um, every single time. And this podcast isn't supposed to be about that, but ultimately that is the backdrop of what was happening. And so I think the hippie movement was like, no, 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 let's have the breakdown of sexual ethics without the blood. Like Mm. there can be peace. Um, And I think what you, you, what you don't see is peace, but ultimately uh, yeah, men and women together, uh, are always responsible for the breakdown of se- sexual ethics. Mm. Of course, the free love movement, um, what couldn't be denied was that the breakdown of marriage would highly favor men, right? Yeah. Um, in terms of their, there's a lot less risk for a man to have multiple partners because he can't get pregnant. Mm. Um, and then that's where the bloodshed comes in, right? That's where the feminists had to fight for abortion because right. in order for women to experience quote unquote free love, of course, we all know what that's a stupid phrase, but that's what they called it. Um, to experience that sexual freedom, uh, requires blood. Yeah. Yeah. I also think, um, this is not a, again, I think I said another, I think I gave another hot take in the last episode, my hot take for this episode is that, oh gosh, okay. Um, <laughs> women are vulnerable mm. and need to be protected, especially emotionally. Now, I what I don't mean by that is that women are all stupid, just wandering <laughs> around the world, incapable of anything. Right. But my point is that um, 
the vulnerability, especially emotionally and physically, of course, uh, I think sort of uh, created men as we see them today, and especially um, men during that time that were more than willing to take advantage of the benefits of women seeking their sexual freedom. Um, and I think that that uh, greatly contributes to the breakdown of society. The fact that um, women are vulnerable and yet we refuse to acknowledge that and refuse protection. And what that actually creates is a brute of uh, it's, it's brutish men mm. um, mm. because mm -hmm. men are no longer required to behave as the protector because women are saying no no we don't need that we are not vulnerable mm -hmm. even though every step along the way um i mean especially there you know we like to paint the free love era in a certain light but when you really when you really get down mm -hmm. to the emotional component of promiscuous sex in women you can pretend as all day long you can pretend for decades we've been doing it um, but it's really nothing more than posturing. It's nothing more than pretending that women are okay with being promiscuous mm. and that women are okay without being protected by fathers, uh, pastors, husbands. Um, and it's just, it's just one big pretend game. And the, the fruits of it are lots of emotional damage to women, bloodshed, um, and a totally problematic society of men. So we kind of created the problem. And then now we're like, oh, now women will have the solution too, right? But that's not, it's kind of wrong from yeah. the get-go. So like, this is almost an example too, where we're talking about in the, but again, this is part two. So if any of you are wondering what this is about, if you do, if you didn't want, you're probably if you didn't listen to part one yeah. and you listen to the first fifteen minutes, you're like, what am I listening to? <laughs> but you're um, very adventurous. Yeah. but definitely go back and listen but, to the first. But yes, yeah, so jumping back into the book, uh, we were discussing the part one. I think you made a great point, Joy. How it's, the book is really not a lot about Manson. It's just really about all these interesting side characters or even sides of people that you thought that you knew, like Vincent Bugliosi or Terry Melcher or other characters in the original uh, official story. Um, and you can also check out our, our series we did on Manson uh, with Dr. Robin uh, Mindhunter, as we like to call her. <laughs> and, uh, so anyways, um, yeah, it's like you're always seeing people like at their worst, at their pivotal point where they compromise or they don't do something right. And so in the same way how you see all these people, you know, behind the scenes in law enforcement just doing all the shady stuff, you see it behind Matt Charlie. Uh, there's really not a lot of good people in this story. And essentially, it's no. just, it's really a travesty and it's really almost like a case and character study of just human nature like in a sense as well too. Right, even um, the people that like I guess as close as you get to like the heroes of the story are all just frustrated. Mm. Like they had information that they didn't know how to, uh, it's like, with. what could I do? My yeah. hands were tied. Um, and that's like pretty much as close other than Tom O'Neill. That's as close mm. as you get to like a hero of the story. Like someone who's actually yeah. willing to do whatever it takes for truth. Mm -hmm. Right. 
And I think that's an aspect too, where, um, again, well, it's, I think a conclusion is at least for a lot of people in this book is like, well, we, we'll get in this towards the end, but, but what do you actually do? It makes you start to question everything, the way that he depicts right. it in such a way, because he doesn't really give, um, he doesn't really give a, a full conclusion of this is what definitively happened. Mm-hmm. He gives you enough to really raise in the question what was initially brought up. So uh, jumping back into just aspects of history of the 1960s, Andrew, bring everyone into what you said at the very at the end of the uh, part one. Uh, let's jump into uh, let's just ju- unravel uh, more of this case and Tom O'Neill's work, and let's uh, let's get the CIA going. <laughs> Yeah. All right. So we shouldn't be surprised, essentially, what I was talking about, that the government government may have have its hands in things, especially court, uh, think court proceedings. Right. Like with Vincent Bugliosi being the prosecutor for a reason. Maybe it was for the benefit of the United States government at that time to have a scapegoat. Right. Maybe it could be for a false flag to be being thrown to keep someone looking another direction. Right. Just like how the culture of the 60s with uh, feminism uh abortifacients being legalized, then uh, Roe versus Wade and abortion, while all of that is going on, the United States government uh, then takes advantage of the people who aren't really paying attention to what's going on by then also doing experiments on them, right? Like who's really in control of the cultural climate of America uh, is the question. But what we shouldn't be surprised about is that the, the government may have its hands in things that we don't know it has its hands in hands and things on, or I don't know how we don't know it's touching it, but it is anyways, there's a story of a Jimmy Shaver, which was what I was going to bring up. And there's the connection between Jolly West, which is Lewis Jolly West, who was one of the CIA. I what's the word I'm looking for scientists who was helping do tests on people. Okay. And this is back before the sixties. This is the story of Jimmy Shaver. And this happened July 4th, 1954. Remember MK ultra started in 1952. And there was research going on on how to create hypno-programmed assassins who would be amnesic to the crimes that they committed, okay? So taking this information, I got it from an article that was actually written by Tom O'Neill and Dan Pipenbring. And I'll, I'll read you just the beginning of it, all right? It says, on the night of July 4th, 1954, in San Antonio, Texas, they were shaken by the rape and the murder of a three-year-old girl. The man accused of these crimes was Jimmy Shaver, an airman at the nearby Lackland Air Force Base. He had no criminal record. Shaver claimed to have lost his memory of the incident. So Shaver, Jimmy Shaver was out at a bar and outside of that bar was three-year-old Sheer Joe Horton and her parents were just letting her play out there. Times were different back then in the fifties. Anyways, she had disappeared. So the police ended up looking for her within an hour. Um, they came up upon a, the police came upon a car in a, by a gravel pit and um, Cher's underwear uh, was hanging from one of the car doors. She wandered out of the dark or, Shaver wandered out of the darkness. He was shirtless, covered in blood and scratches. Um, he made no attempt to escape. It looked like he was dazed in like a trance-like state. And it seemed he didn't seem drunk or anything like that, but he didn't understand why he was there. But then uh, the poor little three-year-old girl, her body was found. Uh, she was dead and her neck was broken and her legs had been torn and she had been unfortunately raped. So deputies arrested Shaver. He was only 29 years old. Uh, he had two children and no history of violence, okay? But he did work actually in the Lackland Air Force Base. So there are medical documents showing that he went through experimental tests for migraines. Anyways, while he was in court, uh, he, remember, he didn't remember anything, guys, about what happened. So uh, the commander of the base hospital, Colonel Robert S. Bray, ordered a psychiatric elevation 
evaluation to be performed. And guess who performed that evaluation? Was Dr. it Lewis? West? Yeah, it was West, <laughs> the head of the psychiatric services at the air base. And so West continued to hypnotize him. And he gave him an injection of sodium pentothal or truth serum. Remember what Project yeah. Artichoke was about, right? To try to find a truth serum. So while Shaver was under uh, the truth serum, according to the testimony, he recalled events of that night. Uh, supposedly uh, that the little girl brought out repressed memories of his cousin, Beth Rainboat, who sexually abused him as a child. And Shaver had started drinking at home that night when he had visions of God who whispered into his ear to seek out and kill the evil girl. Beth. Mm -hmm. So while Shaver was under hypnosis, he confessed to killing the young girl. However, he still was maintaining, maintaining his innocence at the, the trial. Uh, so it's, it's, it's a very interesting thing. Why was West there? Right. He already had connections to MK ultra. This has been noted in the, the committee findings that happened in 1974 and 1977. Uh, even the documents back at the medical base, there was names, uh, but SA and ST were vanished off of the documents. So they weren't able to fully link him to actually being the person that experimented on him on the experimental program. But it's very, very uh, speculative, essentially, that ST would have vanished, you know, mm -hmm. like it's very, it's very weird, very sad situation. But what we got to understand is Charles Manson and the Manson murders may not have been the first. Right. This is 1954. This young man who had been through an experimental uh, testing all of a sudden was hearing voices from God and he went amnesic and killed a three year old little girl. Then we have someone who's working on the MK Ultra uh, projects, uh, being the person that talks to him, gives him a truth serum. How, how odd is that? It's got it's the oddest thing to me. Mm. Yeah, I find that odd. It, no, not no, not at all. At all. I'm I'm sure I'm sure they were just doing this with the best of intentions because you know they always it's a coincidence. Just, yeah, all of it, totally, totally. <laughs> um, well, it's just interesting too is that I mean this is when you look at the whole history of the CIA when you kind of go down that rabbit hole. I mean, the one of the things they're notable for is, is just always they've studied aspects of mind control they've actually studied in-depth cults um in fact without going into it there's times where they've actually started cults uh in a sense to it there's a whole we actually talked that in our series uh jeffrey epstein and the finders we kind of went into that aspect and so this is something that you know they've been very well known for and, you know, one, you talk about life imitates art, but if actually, if you, if you want to go really down the rabbit hole, pro I think it's Project Mockingbird, where this, this is a matter of public fact that the CIA has been heavily involved, too, in Hollywood and cinema and what's being depicted, uh, just to always sway the public in regards to how they think about things. And so when you actually look into uh, the work behind Ian Fleming, there's a direct connection between Ian Fleming, who uh, created James Bond. Mm -hmm. And having that depicted on film, because when you, how did that, how did James Bond sway the public? Well, all of a sudden, tactical espionage and having a license to kill anyone, mm -hmm. all of a sudden that became like a very cool and suave and sexy thing. Yeah. And, but the, also, when you look at movies like The Bourne Identity, uh, the mm -hmm. Jason Bourne series, like that, that whole thing is about what this is. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like it's a, it's a, it, that's that you see that depicted. So what you also see 
is again, there's a direct correlation that Tom O'Neill brings up that this, what you're seeing, it's, it's almost like forensic when you have a certain person who is a certain type of killer. Um, and all of a sudden you see this crime, this forensic scene looks like how this person, it's a similar murder. Well, more than likely it's like birds of, you know, birds of a, feather flock together what's yeah, the thing that's the, that's okay. the thing i want to make you sure said, you said okay. it right well i'll make sure i, I was saying it correctly <laughs> but you're looking at all these different instances that just totally correlate to what's actually being depicted down in the helter skelter down to the same people being involved that are not just right. charles manson <laughs> right and so he gets other unique instances too so the infamous picture of Jack Ruby when he shot uh, Lee Harvey Oswald. Like one of the things that Tom O'Neill goes into the book is that Lee, that uh, Jack Ruby didn't really have much recollection uh, when he actually, after the fact, when he actually killed him, he didn't really, he, he kind of was in a stupor, didn't really know like what really happened. Mm-hmm. And then when he was going to testify, he had, I forget the, whoever the psychiatrist was assigned to, but Ooh. it was somebody that was, do you remember who it was, Andrew? Was not it? off the top of my head, no. Oh, not off the top of your head, but it was something. It was someone that was uh, connected to the MK Ultra program. Were you talking? Are you talking about the psychotic break? The, he, had the, he had the he had the psychotic was, break. That was West. Yes. So yeah, the same go. guy. The same it way was West. The same guy. Yeah. Also, so, just to keep in mind, I mentioned in the last episode, his handler. It was proven that his handler was Gottlieb, who is the for the father of MK Ultra. Right. Yep. So all of a sudden, like you think about just, you know, life imitates art and me being a movie person. So remember Batman Begins, uh, the very uh, first of uh, the Christopher Nolan films. Scarecrow. He, yeah, Scarecrow. He comes in and he blow and the, the main mob guy, Falcone, he blows the, whatever some sort of hallucinogen on him. And all of a sudden he's hallucinating and he loses his mind. He walks away. He's like, yeah, he's insane. And that sort of took care of it. So. You're telling me like that, but that only happens in the movies, right? Right, right. <laughs> well, apparently it, it doesn't. Right. As yeah. we know. Yeah, so... <laughs> Sometimes it does happen as as a result of manipulation, brain right. manipulation. Yeah, and, and this, this goes to show you that, you know, this is, this is accurate. I mean, I don't know, there's a book that talks about this, people being totally depraved. And really, the Bible. Well, yeah. Oh, okay. I know it's crazy. <laughs> I was like, "Where? What does he mean?" <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, it, like, I think what you're seeing in this, it's that for me, like, I grew up like I'm, I'm American. Like, I love, I still love America, mm-hmm. but there's levels in which you you read about this, and you're like, "This is messed up. This mm-hmm. is evil. And this is wicked." Mm-hmm. And it's kind of like you can't really you know, sugarcoat. It in this sort of like sappy, like I'm proud to be an American, but along, but when you see this stuff, it's like, man, I gotta think as a Christian first, like this is evil and wicked. It makes you just think about, well, I don't know, it's just, uh, it's, it's definitely challenging in that sense because you're just seeing people at their worst doing whatever necessary to, to hold their rings of power, right? And I think that kind of connects to the whole the thing I was talking about doing doing the wrong thing mm. um and I, I mean it just uh, there's an element of it uh, for me i kind of uh, a part of me just wants to go to the fact that we don't we have lost in our culture 
we've even like we don't even have an objective standard for what the right thing is Mm. or what truth is or what and then we we there are these big symposiums that meet to determine what is unethical to do to another person, Mm. even though it should be pretty Pretty obvious obvious. that you are not allowed to give people LSD Mm. and see how uh, suggestible they are. Um, And, uh, but I, I think that's a, a big part of it is that the more we delve into weird, the weird neutrality of, secular society i think you are just gonna we're all just becoming a culture of i mean at this point i think we already are um uh, there's a lot of people out there that have a lot of power that are not operating with an objective standard for what the right thing is that they should be doing um and then of course there are the it almost there's another level of it which is there is almost sort of a sick uh, curiosity that is being um they're, they're it's like oh we're curious to see if we can get another person get someone to kill another person and mk ultra started out uh west his his original uh basically goal was to see if he could implant a false memory or mm-hmm. if he could change the belief mm-hmm of a person mm-hmm. um, you, without mm. without talking them into it by basically change basically he was talking about can I like reach into their brain take something out and put something in think, 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 think about this like you're literally making me think about Psalm 2 right like why do the nations rage and plot in vain against the Lord and his anointed but the Lord laughs and holds them in derision think about what essentially what the government would be trying to do in that, that situation where you're saying change a belief in somebody, right? Like the biblical precedence would be to preach the gospel, that there's a heart changed and someone has now a heart of flesh who wants to obey the statutes of God to bring about the kingdom of God on earth. However, the nations in their plotting in vain and being anti-God and anti-Christ try to change the belief system and mindset of a person through control, like putting their own spirit within them, you know? But again, the Lord laughs and holds them in derision and judges the nations and he'll break them like a pot shirt. Like we see literally the repercussions of this playing out in our society today. Mm-hmm. It's it's equivocal. Like the fruits of the unbelieving worldview are on full display. We have 63 million babies dead in America, right. 1.58 million, uh, 1.58 billion, I'm sorry, dead worldwide. I mean, it's on full display, our sin. We yeah. can't change the beliefs of somebody through subject, suggestive drugs and for the benefit of mankind. There's no pragmatism or utilitarianism in that. That's just trying to take only what God can do for the benefit of the neighbor, right? Only God can do that thing through the gospel. Yeah. It's, it's just man's way of trying to produce something that they can't do. I, the, I feel like judgment is the only outcome. Yeah, there's a fundamental rejection of humanity in it too which is just that like a human being is just what's in their brain and if you can just change what's in their brain like Mm -hmm. it's just all then you can change who they are like it's just all it's this very like i said i use the word it's like a sick curiosity like let's see like let's learn about humans yeah let's let and by doing so let's abuse humans and um change their physiology to see if that changes them and it just it's very uh it's wicked 
It's really wicked. Yeah. Yeah. And, it's and, from bondage to bondage is what it is mm. when only the gospel has the power to free us. Right. You know, to mm. actually be human in terms of how God says the human race is supposed to act. Right. Yeah, and I think uh, what's in- interesting too, and you talk about just like wicked, wickedness and depravity on display, where you know our system of justice as a whole, I mean, it derives in many ways from biblical principles too, like the right to try to a trial by jury. I mean, that whole aspect of the trial comes from biblical law, mm-hmm. as far as you know, a, a testimony has to be gathered by two, three, and an accusation has to be gathered by uh, two, three independent lines of testimony and witness. And, you know, that's been talked about a lot. But when you actually look at just the the trial and what it actually depicted, again, Bugliosi is this patron saint, you know, that, that convicted Manson. But when you actually look at the moves that he was making and the compromises that he was making to pull this yeah. together, I mean... He was making the story fit. He mm-hmm. wasn't actually trying to get justice. And you see the first half of this book is basically Mm -hmm. just about that it's basically just people (laughs) people not actually investigating or being people who are investigating being silenced or someone's talking over here and then another person's talking over here so there's not really any cohesive way to present the actual like what actually happened and then you add 30 years to that and Mm -hmm. all of a sudden it's almost like see look truth we can't even really know it's true yeah and it's like well we Mm could have we had a much better shot in 1969 Mm -hmm. if people had been honest um and able to do their jobs i do don't get me wrong i definitely admit that there was um you know uh, if if it is a cover-up the way that um i mean it was a cover-up for something we just don't know exactly the mystery is what exactly mm-hmm. he posits what what was going on but that's still a little bit of a mystery um i don't know yeah do you guys remember uh about the tex watson tapes yeah did you guys read about that mm-hmm. i think that's something very interesting as well where uh, essentially tex watson actually gave a testimony to his lawyer, I believe his lawyer in Texas, that no one has access to these tapes. However, he gives his side of the story prior to actually him going back to Los Angeles. Because remember, he escapes from Los Angeles and goes to Texas for a time, and then he's subpoenaed back to L.A. Yep. But the tapes, um, the lawyer has them, and no one has access to listen to them. Um, Leslie Van uh, Houten, one of the, the murderers that was there, uh, says that this could be uh, essentially uh, like the, I don't even like the lifeline really to what truly was going on because supposedly Susan Atkins ha- was uh, compromised, giving up a specific story, going along with the helter skelter uh, narrative. So like you said, who knows really what's going on, but there could be some shred of evidence that comes out in the future. If some of those tapes, the Tex Watson tapes actually get released. Well, and I think that that is becoming sort of a trend with true crime, which is, <laughs> investigating it years after it happened, Mm -hmm. sometimes decades after it happened. Mm -hmm. And I really do think there is a cultural narrative that is trying to be pushed today, which is that we can't know what's true. Mm -hmm. Don't Mm. cooperate with law enforcement. Um, Do not report crimes that are done against you. If you see something, don't say something because you know what? People get wrongfully imprisoned. And you know what? You tell the cops and they don't believe you. And that is the dominant narrative. And when you and and then you go back and you um, it's honestly what I appreciate 
about this book is mm-hmm. that there is some concern for what the truth what actually is, was. Yeah. And you know what? Even he, We don't know why there was a cover-up, but he, mm. uh, Tom O'Neill, absolutely exposed real, true, documented holes yeah. in this story. And he, he exposed the failure mm-hmm. yeah. of the, the, the people that were supposed to be mm-hmm. enforcing the law and protecting the citizens. Yeah. Um, and there's a... If anything, I'm more compelled by the story <laughs> than mm-hmm. I ever was before. Yeah. Just because of that. The most compelling part of the story for me ever was, of course, Sharon Tate. Mm. And be, her being so pregnant and just what a violation and what an like just what an evil, wicked story. The whole thing and everyone who was murdered was violated. Mm. But just there is there is this <sighs> there is almost this idea this narrative being pushed that crimes can't be solved and justice can't actually happen. Mm-hmm. And I just disagree. Yeah. I do think there's a lot of reform that has to happen. There's a lot. We have so many laws in our country that are stupid. Uh, right. <laughs> um, and I think that makes, I think that probably assists with the bureaucracy and the tedious nature of a lot of what goes into a criminal investigation. And of course, during the break, Andrew, you were saying we, you know, we have to be fair and consider that the people that were uh, investigating this crime when it happened don't know everything like we know it. (laughs) Um, And they're, they were very different people from us. They didn't have iPads. They didn't have cell phones. You know what I mean? Like Mm -hmm. in a way we can't totally understand what it's like to be them. But I do think that it's, um, I don't know. I just, I think the, there's a reason why our culture wants to say you can't get justice through the law. And I think that's because they hate God and the law comes from God. Yeah. And I think as well, too, I remember like when we did our series on Manson, <clears throat> one of the heartbreaking aspects was we played this audio notes of Sharon Tate's mom, where she would go to every single parole hearing of Tex yeah. Watson. And there's this moment where she's just passionately saying, well, you know, you say you, you know, you've changed and all that. You've been here. But she basically says, like, I've I she was taken from me all these years ago. Mm-hmm. And now I I haven't had the opportunity to be a grandmother mm-hmm. right. because like you took that away. Mm-hmm. And her like longing for justice, but everything is focused in on Tex Watson. Right. And I think what was fascinating you know, about kind of knowing that. And obviously Texas responsible, apparently, you know, he's now a born again Christian. And, um, you know, but you look at just all the law enforcement and like whatever the connection is, if there is legitimacy to the research that Tom O'Neill has done, there's a lot more to this Mm -hmm. that caused the death of this woman who is eight months pregnant, Sharon Tate. Right. And, they not only do they they didn't have an empathy now it's like okay how can we exploit this for our own our own uh political gain and for our own power it's even suggested that this there was surveillance being done mm-hmm. at the time of the murders yeah and it's it's undeniable that law enforcement knew that charles manson was involved bef- long before they arrested him mm-hmm. um and mm-hmm. there were there were moments where there was a raid yes. at the ranch that they were at. Um, a huge raid. Huge. I mean, it was like it was insane the amount of uh, police cars that were there. And within, 
either next day or a couple of days, mm-hmm. they uh, let everyone. You're loot, talking about free. you're talking about um, specifically Charles Manson, but multiple members of the family were on parole or probation. So you're talking about people who were arrested during a raid and found in violation of their probation or their parole, and they were let go. They were let go. Mm-hmm. Angie, have thoughts on that? No, I just, I just find it extremely, extremely interesting. Uh, I mean, there's even Tom talks about uh, essentially that there is even a spook, and a spook is essentially a CIA operative or spy that was inside the Manson family, who, in hindsight, says he may have actually been able to stop what occurred. Yeah, and supposedly the same man was actually on the grounds of of the murders, the, mm-hmm. the the Tate murders, seven hours prior to the police actually even being there. Yeah. Yeah, and then not only that, I mean, there's as- there's other aspects too. When you look at, you know, what what does it say in in uh, in John where it says no one comes to the light lest their deeds be exposed? I thought it was amusing. There's a point where he mentions the I don't know if he mentions this in the book, but he mentioned that uh, Tom O'Neill mentioned this. I listened to a couple of different podcasts where he was being interviewed by different people, and he was talking about when he was in- talking to uh, Terry Melcher. Now, right. supposedly the, the official narrative is that Terry Mitch, Terry Melcher had lit, and he was the uh, he was in the Beach, Beach Boys. Boys, and he, uh, that's uh, Dennis Wilson was in the Beach Boys. But oh, Terry, that's right. Yeah. Terry Melcher is the son of Doris Day, and he was like a upper mi- music producer. Right, right. So yeah, oh, I was getting right. mixed up. Okay, so he was uh, so Terry. It was that Terry Melcher previously lived at the Tate residence, and so mm-hmm. the idea was that. He wanted to go uh, to do these murders as a way to scare uh, Terry Melcher as well, too. Who had backed out on a a record. promised him a record record deal, deal, and he backed out. And so what's interesting is that, so as Tom's doing this research. Sorry, it's just so stupid. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Sorry. Continue. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Wait, are you talking about uh, Terry Melcher's testimony or the fact that Charles Manson could ever get a record deal? Uh, Both of them. (laughs) Both yeah. of these things are more, it's, it's such a stupid, non-plausible. Okay. Sorry. Continue. Yeah. <laughs> Go ahead. Um, so I need to get you a soapbox a little bit. So. <laughs> Just, yeah. yeah so summer soapbox will be on, uh, she loves Patreon. Shout out. Yeah. To enjoy. enjoy it. Summer um, soapbox. Yes. That should be a segment. A the more pregnant segment I get, for sure. Yes. Yeah. The more pregnant right. I get, the taller my soapbox gets. <laughs> Which, by the way, our first crossover, you were pregnant with Georgia. Oh, oh how funny. Wow. Yeah. Now so force... every four crossovers. <laughs> that's, the... that's the map? I don't know. Okay. Anyway. Yes. But where is I going with this? Yeah. Oh, yeah. So what Tom O'Neill ends up finding is that after the murders happened, that Melcher actually visited spawn ranch on several occasions right and i forget the exact context behind it but man oh man when uh tom o'neill has a point where he actually talks to melcher and says hey I, i've got the proof to show that you visited here's <laughs> if manson wanted C- to scare you why yeah. didn't he scare you when you were looking right at him and in yeah. person <laughs> well after that not only that like the murders happen and you go to the place right. where the murderers are staying right um, there's that variable in play, but 
there's a moment where Terry Melcher's uh, livid at Tom O'Neill when he's telling him this, and he says, "I could t- like you'll never be able to expose anything about me. I'm, I could take a briefcase like right now, like throw it out the window. And there's nothing you could do about it." And he goes, "Do you think I actually? Do you, you know, I have spare copies of everything in the briefcase at home, <laughs> right? right. <laughs> but it just goes to show you. I mean, I was visualizing when he when Tom O'Neill was telling this story. It's like somebody." You know, it's like a mafia movie or something who totally thinks they're getting away scot free, and all of a sudden they realize that oh, somebody knows about this, mm-hmm. and they they get hostile really, really quickly. You see, I think a lot of like when you actually read this book, it's like a case study of what happens when you see people like hot and a lie when, when you think you've gotten away with something for thirty years. Yeah, mm-hmm. right. And so what you end up seeing. Like, as the book progresses, I mean, from the very beginning to when uh, Tom O'Neill is uh, hanging out with Bugliosi, and he again, he's whining and dining him, and he says, yeah. you know, they spent all day on Sunday, he drove him around, they had a lot, they had a couple dinners together, and he was just really relishing in his fame. He, I mean, he was really a, nar- I mean, he was a narcissist to the nth degree, uh, Bugliosi was, and then seeing him, like, loving the fact that he's seeing him for how he wants to be perceived... But as soon as he starts gathering stuff that contradicts the official story, man, oh, man, did he flip on a switch. Quick. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, real quick. Yes. I think it's a huge case study for all the different people involved like in this whole story. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it really exposes what Bugliosi was attempting to achieve. And as a prosecutor, when I say prosecutor, I think it's reasonable that you would think he was after justice, but... It's pretty clear that that's not what he was after. And I think that um, I think I think it's possible that there was some larger play when he was selected to be the main prosecutor. But it doesn't erase the fact that Bugliosi did it for himself. He did it to be famous and he did it to be the one that that put these guys away. But the point of justice is to make victim's hole and that didn't seem to even be on his radar at all um if it had been i don't think we would be finding out about a lot of this stuff uh well tom o'neill found out 30 years after it happened and then we're finding out much much later yeah Mm -hmm. after that 50 years yeah right 50 years well what's also interesting too and this is in the whole realm of like conspiracy theories. And in fact, I mean, that whole term was, was actually a term created by the CAA to really demonize and, right. wep- and weaponize is a weapon. It was a weaponized linguistics against anybody um, mm-hmm. who, who would question whatever the official story of the government w- was saying. And That's so, yeah. And so when you, when you look at something uh, like this, you know, also boot one of the, Bugliosi's primary works that he did was backing up the official story of the JFK assassination. Uh, he came out of the book all these years later saying that Lee Harvey Oswald acted alone. And again, it's it's this isn't really about the JFK assassination, but it is historically it is one of the it's it it's one of the most contested stories of what actually happened versus there are a lot of people who really question uh, what Lee Harvey Oswald acting alone. Yeah. And so I know it's kind of interesting in this whole aspect because the where 
we talked about this in the other episode. So where a lot of people go when you read something like this, it makes you unravel and like question everything. And I think as a Christian, though, I think it's good to be a conspiracy realist. So we're supposed to love our neighbors. And so I wouldn't want any of my friends or anyone that I care for to be treated by the government in the way that people in the MK Ultra program were treated. So there's levels in which you should be aware of what's going on. But I think there's something like this when you read a book like this where it can be dangerous, where you kind of like fragment and you go down the rabbit hole and becomes this obsessive right. idol. So like what, and we've had an episode before in conspiracy theories, but when it comes to all this, maybe you can give me your thoughts too. And Andrew, and you can give me your thoughts. I'm pointing at the TV screen, even though I can't see, even though you're not on Zoom, <laughs> but I'm so used to you being there. But, but yeah, like how do we, what's the proper way as a Christian to think all about this? Cause Tom O'Neill's not a Christian. Um, he's acting biblically. He's gathering independent lines of testimony and witness, but with a story like this, how do we, how how do we read this in such a way where we take away wisdom from it? We not go crazy and go down all these like crazy rabbit holes. I feel like there's a fine line to walk with something like this. Yeah, I really appreciated uh, in his interviews because I listened to a couple. He would be asked a question. And he would say, well, I don't really, this is speculation. I, you know, I don't really want to speculate. Um, I don't, and I really appreciated that he was not willing to say my opinion is fact. He was very clear. These are, here's what is provable. Here's what is, here's what has as evidence. Here's what I can back up. And here's what would be just pure speculation, which I really appreciated. And I do think as Christians, um, it's incumbent upon us to do that. But also there's a skill that Christians should have where we should be able to speculate in, for, in an informed way. We should be able to gather evidence and mm-hmm. form a opinion based in evidence that we know the difference between that opinion and fact. Um, so, for instance, if you talk to somebody every single day, and every single day they lie to you and you know that for a fact. Mm. The next day that you speak to them, you shouldn't be like, I know this person is telling me the truth and that's what I'm going to assume. You should act in a discerning way. Now, if you don't know the next day, let's say they've lied to you like 15 days in a row and you talk to them on the 16th day, do you know for a fact that what is about to come out of their mouth is going to be a lie? No. Would it be, I think, a righteous speculation to say there's a pretty good chance what they're about to say is a lie? Yeah. Yes. At least check it out. At least <laughs> at least be discerning, right? right? I think what this book has underlined for me is that there is nothing new under the sun. Earlier this year, I did a lot of reading about how the, the U.S. government was doing testing on people in jail they were not not even testing they were forced sterilizing people in jail and this was uh the rise of eugenics and it does have a lot to do with what we're talking about actually Mm. um and then we find out what are they doing decades later they're testing on humans (laughs) drug usage on humans in jail um would it be crazy to say that that is just not happening anymore Would it be out of the realm of possibility? We have evidence of decades of the government testing on prisoners 
and what and the yeah. same institution that did it still exists and the same institution mm-hmm. that did you can right. go online and they they have like you could work for the right. do you want to be a part of the first line of defense for the cia and you can like apply <laughs> to be to be yeah. tested <laughs> on so i think it's super super important that we i think that the the culture at large has weaponized the idea of a conspiracy theorist being a total crazy person. Right. But it's important that you do not just blank check, believe whatever you are told. And that's what I'm saying about the person that lies to you for 15 days in a row. You don't get on the 16th day. You don't hand them a blank check that says, I'm going to believe everything that you say and live my life accordingly when I know your history. Yeah. And so it's important. I mean, and why is it important? Well, because two years and some change ago, you and your neighbors were washing and hand sanitizing your groceries after coming back from the grocery store wearing beekeeper hats and gloves because the government told you that COVID was going to kill you. Yeah. And people have lived. I'm I'm listening. There's a podcast that I listen to. It is the middle of 2022. There's a podcast I'm listening to where the two hosts were talking about how they are still quarantining. That is why this is like, that is why not believing everything that you hear is an issue of like wisdom and loving your neighbor. And it needs to be something that Christians are, we're willing to say like, just because the guy on TV said it doesn't mean I believe it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I mentioned in the first episode, like just reading this, and then comparing what I've learned here to all the other true, quote unquote, true crime stories I've read just makes me think, wow, like what else have I been told that I've just believed? Like, I don't have any reason to believe it other than I was told it. For instance, last night I was watching um, the Our Father documentary on Netflix, which is a true crime documentary. And there's a little section in there where they totally lie about the Quiverful movement. Like it is, they talk about the Quiverful movement for, I don't know, five minutes, maybe. Yeah. But everything contained in that five minutes, I know for a fact is not true. But if this was your introduction right. to the Quiverful movement, and I'm not even defending the movement, I'm not even, mm. I'm not making any comment on the movement itself, except that I know. You guys, I heard that summer is Quiverful. <laughs> She is pregnant right now. <laughs> I am pregnant. There's your proof. Um, but it's it's a huge documentary right now. And the five minutes they spend on the Quiverful movement is completely wrong from top to bottom. Mm. And so what other document, you know what I mean? Like what other documents, what other things have you read? What other movies have you watched? What other news reports have you just been like, oh, okay, that's happening. And it is simply not true. Yeah. No, there's, well, there's actually a passage in Proverbs that says that's the glory of kings to seek out a matter. So there is levels in like, you should look and find out, you know, what is like, what is right and what is wrong. And so, you know, in really what you're seeing, you know, law enforcement, you know, God has put in law enforcement to be a restrainer of evil. But when you like jumping back to the book and Andrew, I'll let you jump in here as well too. But when you look at, Really, in many ways, he like Tom O'Neill makes a case that Manson could have been really an informant um, for whatever was going on. And so on some level, what he 
uncover is that unilaterally across all different realms of law enforcement jurisdictions and all that, there is kind of a circling, scrambling and circling of the wagons uh, after the murders happen to really cover their bases. And so when you see something like that, it just tells you like that was so really incredibly shady. So if they're shady about this, what else were they shady about? Right. And so like, where's the real true justice of these people who are putting on the badge and are saying that we're going to be the arbiters of justice for for everyone's well-being, mm-hmm. but just full of all this corruption. So, mm-hmm. uh, Andrew, give me your thoughts on like what I said, but also on anything, anything that Summer said about you know how to think about the conspiracies as well, too. Yeah. So as a Christian, I think we have the benefit of thinking of these conspiracies with the key in our pocket, right? Like I'm thinking about Pilgrim's Progress when Christians in the castle of despair Let's say for the unbeliever or uh, someone who denies the God of the Bible, that when they have the tendency to read about these conspiracy theories, they fall into this castle of despair, but really they can never get out of the cage, right? Their mind is trapped. But as the Christian, we have the key, we have the answer, we have the gospel, right? We have documents that are 100% certain that we have had throughout time. God breathed documents. It's called God's word, right? So when looking at conspiracy theories, we have the ability to have an objective uh, eye vantage point. We just can't forget the key is in our pocket like Christian. You may wallow for a time getting stuck as the Christian into conspiracy theories, but actually the answer is already there and God is with you. But in terms of what's going on with the nation at this time, what it makes me think about uh, with MK Ultra and the government is, is really that when we have a nation that's denied God, we have a nation that falls into judgment. Like it says in Isaiah chapter two, it says for the law will go forth from Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between the nations and will render decisions for many peoples. And they will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation and never again will they learn of war. But we got to understand that that's when the law goes forth from Zion, right? Like we cannot deny what God has put in his word, which is an objective standard of truth and try to replace it with our own man-made word in our government. I mean, God is the one who has instituted governments and civil government is a blessing for us by God, but it turns into a judgment when we're not actually doing what we should do, how God dictated it, right? Like you said it, Jerry, the government is supposed to protect us, right? Like praise, praise those who do good and punish those who do wicked. That's the end, right? And we should be basing our laws off of what the law of God says, and we will be blessed by God for doing it. But what we see uh, in the nation with MK Ultra and a nation that's been handed over in judgment is that we try to set up our own, right? You can't take God out of government. It's not possible. You're either going to worship God and his law, or you're going to have man's law. And what, what comes from man's law, man's judgments is death and bloodshed, just like uh, Summer was talking about, right? Like the sexual revolution in the French rebellion, what did it lead to? It led to massive amounts of bloodshed. Only when the law goes forth from Zion will they hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. The gospel is the thing that changes people. And Jesus Christ is king over the world. He is king over every government. They should be doing as the king says. So it logically follows that when you're not doing what the king says, Bad things happen. Bad things happen. And we shouldn't be surprised by that as Christians. But what we should understand as Christians is we should be the salt and the light in the world, actually bearing the rod, keeping the state in bay, because Christ is the only one who can keep the state beast at bay. You know, I mean, like that's that's the reality of it. Right. Hmm. The meek shall inherit the earth. So, I mean, I don't, I don't know. That, that's kind of how I think about it in a Christian perspective. We should not be surprised. And if someone is surprised and they're angry reading this information and they're an unbeliever, 
Well, that's because you're made in the image of God, right? You're seeing that these wicked things are happening, but now you have no actual standard to, comp- to compare it to. You have no real reason to understand suffering or human depravity when you're just an accident. But the truth is, is that there is a purpose and there is a reason and all things are being placed under Christ's feet. So I don't know. That's kind of how I think about it as a, as a Christian. Yeah. And one of the things uh, I'll let you both jump in here as well, too. Um, One of the things that I thought about as we, as we kind of wrap up here, uh, that in this whole thing started off as an article that he was going to write for premier magazine became a 20 year project. Apparently he's got enough material where he's going to write a second book with even more info. So, wow. Yeah. This is not a small book. No, yeah. it's not. I, how many, what, what are we at It's here? like 420, yeah. And we 30, said there's a ton of, I didn't even go through the footnotes. Yeah. So I've gone through, I, I got through three fourths of the book, like, like reading it. And then the other half, I just had to go through like audible. Cause I just, I feel like I had to just kind of get it audio wise in my brain. But apparently there's tons of extra stuff in the footnotes that he goes into further detail. Yeah. He said he has, obviously it's a 20 year project. He has enough to do a second volume. So he's working wow. on, but there also might, it actually might be like a mini docu-series. So he, he can't really say what it's about, but he definitely, his interview with Rogan really took off. But what's interesting though, is that it obviously became a 20 year project. So as he's doing this investigative journalism, there's certain people he's in contact with, but this obviously happened in 1969, started the 30th anniversary, you know, 50 years from an event, people start dying off. And so, oh, I tried to reach this person, but that person passed away. And so in all of this, you have people that are conspiring and working behind closed doors and doing all these things to, you know, to get their power and, and to have their way. But eventually every single person involved in all this, all these footnotes and, and everyone, regardless of whether the connections to MK ultra and all that, I mean, a lot of those people right now are having are having a stand before a Holy God and have already gotten perfect justice. So like you want justice behind that, like you already have it. If like in Christ, because in through, and also through God, you have perfect judgment. And in fact, I think this is one of the things I thought of in a uh, Hebrews four, uh, 13 it says no creature is hidden from his sight but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account and that's happened to almost every single person very in a very short amount of time there's people yeah. who are still around a lot of the major involved. players though yeah are yeah have received judgment judgment and perfect justice and uh, and you and that's what you ultimately see is that uh, these you know the justice system we have today is it's only a dim mirror in part mm. of the character of God and who He is, mm-hmm. and I think that's something that in a weird way like I can read this and I can <clears throat> like see the gospel in it like you're seeing the broken aspects of it but you you still see people be made in the image of God on some level who are reflecting like wanting justice but I think also. This is something naturally, and even though Tom O'Neill, he's not a Christian, but I think just the drive behind the book. I mean, who does anything for 20 years of something like this, uh, this uh, level of just, uh, you know, passion. But, um, but yeah, but even the, the, the excitement or the intrigue behind this book, I mean, it's become a top seller uh, for, for a while, ever since he came out on Rogan. 
But I think that it is, it's indicative of the marketplace of ideas, people just wanting and striving for for truth. And on some level, there's like they think that they're getting at in this book. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think um, there's an important takeaway, which there are examples of in this book, which is people um, or injustices being brought to light quickly mm-hmm. as they're happening. Um, and I do the biggest shame of this whole project is that it took Tom O'Neill to do it decades. <laughs> um, and then of course, you know, it, it, by his own admission, there mm-hmm. are things that you have to speculate about that are still mystery um, because people's memories fade or uh, they <laughs> or they are, they're intentionally withholding um or there is documentation that's been destroyed. Um, and I think that, like you said, most importantly, there is no sinner uh, that isn't covered, that isn't under the covering of Christ that will not mm. receive uh, what is owed to them. Um, and so that means that wrongdoing does receive justice. Um, but I also... I think that it's, I think that Christians specifically um, need to not play along with the little game where we believe that cases only get solved 30 years after that happens. Rapists only get brought to justice 40 years afterwards, 20 years afterwards when they've hurt more and more and more people. Mm-hmm. Um, this, uh, we, <laughs> we, uh, We've cornered the market on truth. Christians yeah. have a uh, true objective uh, standard. And um, that means that we should absolutely be, con- we should absolutely be concerned um, in matters of the law. And again, obviously just kind of repeating what I said, but we should be willing to do the right thing, even if it's hard, right. even if people don't like us, even if we lose our jobs we should be willing to do the right thing, um, especially when it comes to matters of victims being made whole, and we should be willing to do it quickly. Yeah. Don't, don't, don't get like, <laughs> don't, uh, don't think that there has to be this main narrative, and then 30 years later, some investigative journalist comes along out of necessity and blows yeah. everything up. We have the ability to seek truth and seek justice while things are happening. I mean, that's how yeah. all the CIA stuff um, was tried. Yeah. Someone said, this is wrong. Mm-hmm. And I'm sorry, but I can't imagine it's easy to bring down the CIA or find information on what no. they're doing. Yeah. So that means somebody mm-hmm. said, I am going to do this. I'm going to work this. I'm going to investigate this because this matters. And I, yeah. it's going to be hard, but it's the right thing to do. Yeah. Well, that's what it took with the, I mean, I've talked about this on the show, but the Theranos case, um, yeah. it took, which I, I'm not going to get into, but there are plenty of current cases happening right now where justice has been served because someone was willing to do the scary thing, say the scary thing, lose their job. Um, and, you know, we've 
Joy and I have been talking about the need to pursue justice regardless of the consequences on the show for a while, particularly having to do with the Me Too era, the sex abuse era where everybody's talking about it and nobody's willing to say the hard things. Um, and yeah, I think just my my takeaway is that truth can be known, but you live in a sinful world, so you have to proceed accordingly. No, I agree. And in fact, one last thing as we're up here, uh, Andrew, do you have any last thoughts or are you, are you good? No, that's great. Good. And you know, I thought just one other thing as I was reading throughout the book and I was like, man, it's in the book. It, again, uh, the book is uh, chaos, Charles Manson, the CA and the secret history of the sixties. Uh, in the book, you see this really, this duality that between, uh, Tom O'Neill and Bugliosi. And it's just, it's fascinating, especially towards the end, the, where do we go from here? The final interactions, and what you see, though, is that they, they share a common thread, is that both of these characters, you know, one is Bugiosi has passed away, and he's now facing perfect justice as well, too. Um, and, yeah. And also, uh, Tom O'Neill, like, both of them, they had a, they formulated their identity around the Manson movement, mm. um, you know, in the same way. Mm-hmm. That, you know, Bugliosi was like, hey, I'm the Helter Skelter lawyer. And that was his legacy and his reputation. And that's that's the payoff that he got for doing everything that he did with this trial. Again, if you read what he again, what he what Tom O'Neill uncovered throughout the book with the court documents, he was not the patron saint as far as how he formulated this together. But even with someone like Tom O'Neill, I mean, he spent, you know, the last 20 years of his life and he's still going around. I mean, it's still. There's a lot more, you know, now he's ha- he's gotten all this notoriety and, and public you know, spectacle. And in the same way, he's almost, I think he's almost mirroring what Bugliosi in the sense that now his whole identity is now based around yeah. this case and questioning the official yeah. story of it. Yeah. Well, because, I mean, a lot of investigations are vast, especially something like this. But it it's just going to get, the longer you wait the harder and harder it's going to be to investigate something. So now, yeah, you're looking at like, this is the fruit of waiting to do the right thing. Not that this is a bad thing. This book is not a bad thing, but um, it's just taking longer. It's harder. There's less evidence. Um, It's, it should be a signal to all of us to not wait. Yes. Don't wait. (laughs) Don't wait to do the right thing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, good. Well, that's a good way to wrap it up. So this is awesome. We did. This is our fourth collaboration. We we did it. What I'm are we doing s- next summer? I know. We'll have to see. Uh, I like the true crime stuff, though, but that's just. Yeah. We have a. We have a thing for that, toward so. that. Yeah, we'll have to. We'll have to see. It'll be. Uh, mm-hmm. It'll be interesting. Well, have well to see. I feel like Tom O'Neill will. For our like sixty seventh crossover, we can do the second volume of Tom O'Neill's <laughs> yeah. If you ever, yeah, a sixty seventh. That's crossover. how long it's gonna take. <laughs> yeah, because he's certainly. Maybe we can do Harry Potter next. Harry yeah, Potter. there we go. <laughs> there goes half our audience. So. <laughs> yeah, see you guys next summer. Yeah. <laughs> you have a year to read Harry Potter. Whether we talk about it on the show or not. Okay. Uh, <laughs> we will be checking in next time. Okay. Well, you can leave us a voicemail. We have a voicemail mm. number. It's 470-465-0475. Ooh, and we need to get ours. We'll leave we'll yeah. leave our we'll leave our number no. our, on the next crossover. Do not 
complain to me about cultish on this number. <laughs> Only complain to me about sheologians. Um, and you can hit us up at patreon.com slash sheologians. I don't think we have anything else. Yeah. I think that's it. All right. And uh, if you want to slide into my DMs at cultish, <laughs> you got a 1% chance I'll talk to you. 1%. <laughs> yeah. I believe. See you next week. All the leaves are brown.